I would invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 501. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, truly it is good to give you thanks, to praise your most holy and wonderful and unchanging name. We acknowledge that in all of your ways, O Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that gives to us great hope and peace and comfort. As we think of the year behind us, there have been many trials and hardships in the life of our church family. Uh, Even this morning as we hear of the death of C.B.'s father, Lord, as we think about the many trials that may await us in the coming year, none of those things are a surprise unto you. And help us as your children to persevere as we press on toward our heavenly home, toward that day of rest. And would you use our worship service this day And each week as we gather throughout the year toward that end, toward that persevering grace and the charge that is before us to walk in greater zeal and holiness of life, all for the sake of Christ, our risen Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread." Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. As you probably know, there are different types of psalms. There are hymns of praise, there are psalms of thanksgiving, there are wisdom psalms, and there are, of course, psalms of lament. And clearly, Psalm 102 fits into that latter category of a psalm of lament. And though it's a lament written from the experience of great darkness and despondency, at the same time, it is a psalm that is filled with rich instruction as the psalmist takes the reader, takes us really by the hand to the sovereign Lord, that we would find comfort in the midst of our afflictions, that we would find peace in all manner of trial, and that we would find hope in all circumstances that may come into our lives in the coming year. Now, notice the superscription to this psalm. Notice that it is a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Now, we don't know who wrote this particular psalm. We don't know the historical setting in the history of the nation of Israel as to when this psalm was composed. And we don't know the specific type of affliction that the psalmist is experiencing. Well, it seems to be a great physical trial, perhaps some form of illness or even disease. It could also be great internal emotional anguish that has come into his life because of some particularly trying circumstance that weighs very heavily upon him. But the fact that we do not know exactly what the psalmist is wrestling with, I think, helps us to make universal application of this psalm. In other words, there is something that is here that is for each one of us. As we reflect upon the last year, all of us have endured some level of trial and hardship, certainly some much more significant than others. And as we think about the year ahead, we can be certain that suffering and difficulties will continue to come in the life of our church family and will until the day that our Savior returns. That's an inevitability as we live life in a fallen world. And yet we press on And we strive to encourage one another toward that great day, toward that final rest. And there's a wonderful way in which this psalm is really bracketed. Maybe you noticed it. That it starts with that superscription in which the psalmist speaks out of great anguish and affliction. And it ends in verse 28 with the hope of security in that final dwelling place that awaits those of us who are in Christ the Lord. You know, one of the great quests of humanity is to find sustainable resources. Well, my older son majored in environmental science when he was in college, and it was fascinating to read of some of the things that he passed along to me about efforts around the world to try to find renewable, sustainable resources, whether in the area of food or transportation or energy. In a fluctuating world where so much is unpredictable, there is this longing for sustainability, that which is reliable, that which is fixed, that which is certain in a world of uncertainty. And it is a quest, humanly speaking, that will never come to an end. But what the Word of God offers to us 
What we find throughout Scripture and what is held out to us here in this psalm is something so much more valuable than the sustainability of physical resources. But what we find is sustainable hope. What we find is certain comfort and lasting peace in the unchanging God. Sinclair Ferguson, I like to think of him as a wizard, a wizard of pithy statements, we'll say. He writes this. He says, a mind well-stocked with the knowledge of Scripture is a great preservative from inordinate discouragement. It is like a well-stocked pharmacy in which remedies are always at hand. And what a wonderful thing for us as God's people to commit ourselves to in the coming year, to fill the mind more and more with the knowledge of God's Word, stocking up, as it were, in that spiritual pharmacy within mind and heart so that those things are readily available for us to draw upon them in times of need. And so let's see how the psalm helps us to do just that, to stock up on wonderful truths that we can draw upon when the inevitable trials in life hit. And so first this morning, let's talk about the importance of prayer. We see the importance of prayer in the first two verses. Now, of course, the whole psalm is a prayer unto the Lord, but I think the important thing to note is that when affliction comes in the life of the psalmist, the first thing that he does is he goes to the Lord in prayer. And you can't help but as you read through these opening verses of the psalm to feel the fervency of the psalmist as he goes to the Lord in prayer. And you have no doubt that there is frequent crying out to the Lord in prayer. It is the first, it is frequent, and it is to be fervent in our lives. The psalmist begins out of great anguish with this heartfelt cry of despondency as he cries to the Lord. And here I think is an important lesson for us to learn from the Psalms of Lament, that even in the darkest of circumstances, prayer is that vital lifeline. Prayer is one of those things that we all know is important. In all of my years of pastoral ministry, when I ask people about their prayer life, I have yet to find someone that tells me, I'm great. Prayer could not be better. All of us know that that's an area of life that could use great improvements in the coming year, whether it's the frequency of prayer or we think about the content of the things that we pray for or even the fervency of such prayer. We all know that it is important, and yet we find it difficult reading the Bible, coming to worship, gathering with God's people in fellowship, those are things that come up much easier to us as we think about the various means of grace. But in prayer, the mind easily wanders. Distractions seem to be abundant. And when we try to give ourselves to extensive seasons of prayer, we find ourselves perhaps quickly dozing off. And afflictions have a way of being used of the Lord to stir us toward greater awareness of our need for prayer. And I think we see that here as the psalmist cries out to the Lord out of the depths of his circumstances. Now, we may not know why trials happen in our lives the way that we do, but we know the one to whom we can flee in the midst of those hardships. And there might be times in our life in which we are even at a loss for words to know how to bring those great groanings and aches of the heart to the Lord. At times it might feel as though our prayers are more groans than actual words, but we can take all of our burdens to the Lord. 
We can cast all of our anxieties upon Him because He cares for us. No matter how significant the trial, no matter how overwhelming it might seem, no matter how discouraged or how worn down we might feel, we can have confidence that the Lord our God hears and answers the prayers of His children. Truly, His ear is inclined toward us, as the psalmist says in verse 2. In other words, His ear is predisposed toward us because of our union with Christ. We could even say that His ear is biased toward us because we are His children. Now, when we go through hardships, there are many ways in which we are more susceptible to temptations in life. And when we go through periods of great trial, I think there are at least two main temptations that we face. One is the temptation toward isolation, and the other is the temptation to dwell upon disparity. And here's what I mean by those. When you go through a significant trial, it can become so central in your mind, so overwhelming for your heart that it feels like everything else in life is shaped by that trial. Perhaps it's awaiting a serious, significant diagnosis. Perhaps it's an ongoing division in a relationship that you cannot seem to remedy. Perhaps it's loss of employment or death of a loved one. Meanwhile, everyone else's life seems to just go along as normal, and even a close friend who certainly cares about you and empathizes cannot really understand the deep anguish that you're experiencing. And so, the temptation is toward isolation. The temptation is to pull away from community and relationships and the ministry of the local church, the very things that we need more in times of such hardship. But there is something about the pride within our own heart that warps and works in such a way that we convince ourselves that we are alone in our trial and suffering. And it's in isolation that you give yourself permission to despair, which can lead to bitterness and anger toward God and others and resentment and even accusations. But it's simply not true to presume that we are alone in our trials. Even if no one in our immediate social circle has gone through the type of struggle that we are enduring, we have places like this and other places in Scripture in which psalmists and others throughout redemptive history, have gone through great and deep hardships in such places in the Word of the Lord that really resonates with our own hearts. And of course, we have the great high priest in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see more in a moment, who has endured so much more than we ever will. And so, when afflictions come, we must fight that temptation toward isolation. We must also push back against the temptation to focus upon disparity, in which we might think, if I belong to God, I'm a child of the King, then why is this happening to me? Why is this hardship and suffering not happening to one who has anger and disdain in his heart toward God? I feel completely ill-equipped to handle this trial. I can think of so many others who are filled with greater maturity and character who could respond in a much better way than I could. Why do I have to go through such hardship? But the more that we think like that, the more that we open ourselves up to 
disillusionments toward God in which we may question His goodness or doubt His power or charge Him with indifference toward us, the more we grow perhaps in coldness toward our God. You see, the evil one wants nothing more than for God's people to question Him, to question His goodness and kindness and mercy and love. Just as he did in the garden, as he fed those lies to Eve, he continues to do so in our own lives, leading us to believe that God has good things that he is withholding from you. And when we think of those good, we oftentimes think in terms of comfortable circumstances and ease of life. The evil one wants us, you see, to live by sight and not by faith, to doubt God's Word, to question His truth. And so when we do question the Lord, or when we focus on disparity, or when we isolate ourselves, even giving in to self-pity. Of course, we are not honoring the Lord, but we're doing the very thing that the wicked one wants us to do. And so, in these opening verses, there is instruction for us, I think, to cultivate the importance of a growing prayer life. Don't ever think of prayer as a last resort. Don't ever think to yourself that you need to exhaust all of your own resources and abilities, and then when you come to an end of yourself, then go to the Lord in prayer. Don't ever think of prayer as mere recitation either, just going through the list of things to check off in the morning, but think of it as heartfelt, crying out unto the Lord from the things that weigh upon your heart and mind. And in prayer, of course, we are talking to God. We're taking to Him all of the burdens, all of the things that we request of Him. But when we think of praise and adoration, think of it as talking to God about God, about His character, about His promises, about His works, and about His Word. You see, part of that process of stocking up is cultivating a regular prayer life as an important spiritual discipline. And may that be true more and more in the lives of each one of us in the coming year. As we move along in this psalm, we see secondly the nature of the psalmist's struggle in verses 3 through 11. Now, here the psalmist uses some very vivid images to speak of his struggle. And notice how there is pain and anguish on two levels, both physically and spiritually, both with the outer man and the inner man, as it were. Now, sometimes when you read through a psalm of lament like this, it can be difficult to tell whether the psalmist is describing physical pain or if he's using Hebrew poetry in such a way to speak about internal anguish and despondency within his heart that spills over into the physical realm, causing him true hurts and perhaps illness and more. And so, listen to how he describes his struggle here in these verses. Verse 3, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. Notice here that he is struck with the fleeting and passing nature of his days, that he is feeling this agony to his very bones, that is to the very core of his being. And again, whether this is physical pain or whether this is deep internal emotional anguish because of some type of circumstance that is beginning to take its toll upon him physically. Verse 4, my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. 
Perhaps the psalmist is so emaciated that his bones are visible. Or perhaps his cries are so passionate out of a heart filled with such great anguish that it hurts him physically as he cries to the Lord. Verse 6, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Now, there's some ambiguity here in the translation as to exactly what type of birds the psalmist is referencing. Some translations read, I am like a pelican of the wilderness. And so, in a way, I think what the psalmist is capturing here is how wrong things are in this fallen world with the brokenness all around. Because a pelican, of course, does not belong in the wilderness, but by the seashore. An owl belongs in the forests, not in the waste places. A sparrow is never alone as he forages upon the ground, not in isolation on a housetop. It is not right, of course, to lay awake at night, ruminating on such things, but that is the time in which we are to rest and find refreshment in the Lord. So the way that things are supposed to be are just wrong, as the psalmist captures it for us. And it's there in the darkness of those sleepless nights that everything seems to be much more vivid and overwhelming for him. And it's these feelings of despondency that permeate his entire being that seem to be with him continually. Verse 8, all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. You see, it's bad enough that he's experiencing this deep physical or emotional trial, but to make it worse, there are others who taunt him, who mock him, who belittle him, perhaps because he continues to trust in the Lord in spite of these traumatic circumstances. And it seems like there is nothing that he can do to shut their voices, almost like a constant barrage. He is powerless against them as the tears of sorrow flow. It's at this point that I think it sounds very much like the book of Job, doesn't it? You remember when Job goes through these great physical trials in his life, both circumstantially and with his own body as he is filled with great physical ailments. The friends who come around Job are convinced that there is something that he has done in his life to bring about this great hardship and trial. And so for chapter after chapter, it's almost like taunting voices pressing him to consider where he has sinned and done something grievous to the Lord. And it's almost as though the psalmist here through these verses in 3 through 11 is building within his mind. And then we get to verse 10, which I think really captures some shocking words here. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And I think what we have here is really the culmination of deep sorrow and perhaps even part of the temptation that he's dealing with to believe those mocking voices who are questioning his relationship with the Lord. And as his heart spills out to God, it feels as though the Lord's displeasure is directed toward him. Because if the Lord is God, if He is the one who rules over all things, if He has, as I've been told from my young age, 
that He has a purpose and a reason for all things that happen, then what the psalmist can't help but wonder is, what have I done? What have I done to bring this hardship into my life? Perhaps God is against me, as it feels as though He is tossed into the air, only to fall down to the ground again. And that brings us to the third thing that we see in this psalm, which is a shift in his gaze to the Lord as he delights in his God. Because here, I think, is something utterly remarkable about this psalm. Just when he finds himself in rock bottom, down in the depths of despondency, down in the heart of darkness, there is this most remarkable turn in verse 12. And it's a turn that is so extraordinary that it has baffled many critical biblical scholars. They can't help but wonder if this should be a separate psalm altogether, perhaps Psalm 102 and a half. Or at the very least, it's a psalm composed by someone completely different, a later redactor. How could this possibly be the same psalmist, the experience of the same person? But for the one who belongs to the Lord… This is not strange at all, because this is our only hope. Where else can we go but the sovereign Lord? To whom else can we cling but to our God? Remember in John chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, and throngs of people flock to Him in amazement, looking for more incredible signs and wonders. But instead, Jesus withdraws from them and spends that time alone in intimate prayer with His Father in heaven. And when the crowds catch up with Him, He starts saying things like, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. And in fact, it is my flesh that is life for the world. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And we read that many turn away. It's just too shocking. It's just over the top. This is way too much, too radical. Who does Jesus think that He is? We know His family. He has walked among us. What gives Him the right to make such claims? And then Jesus turns to the remaining 12 disciples and asks them, do you want to go away as well? To which Peter, on behalf of the 12, responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? you have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. And this really, I think, is the experience of the psalmist. Life may be filled with great confusion and times of great anguish and heartache. Trials may feel insurmountable. We have no indication in the psalmist that his circumstances have changed. As far as we know, the voices that mock continue, his anguish persists. But there is this wonderful hope because to whom else can he go? And so he turns his gaze to the sovereign Lord, helping us to understand that this is where hope lies, coming to give your worship to God. And I think the wonder here is that he fills his mind and heart, not with the struggles and hardships of life, because it is not his circumstances that define him. It is not his hardship that is his identity, but he fills his mind with the majesty and the splendor 
and the glory of God. And I think this, again, is a wonderful lesson for us to learn from this psalm, that in the midst of affliction and great hardship, there's a sense in which you can't just stop thinking about those things. If someone tells you, well, just stop thinking about that diagnosis, stop thinking about your illness, stop thinking about that betrayal, well, you probably want to get a different biblical counselor at that point. But you see, the hope-filled and lasting thing to do is to fill the mind and heart with that which is so much better. So what are among the things surrounding the nature of God that are so much worthy of occupying His mind and heart? What are some of the things about the nature of God that bring hope and comfort to the psalmist? Well, verse 12, notice again, the Lord is the sovereign and unchanging one. He is the one who is enthroned on high, and His reign will never come to an end. He is the merciful Lord who will be faithful and true to His covenant promises, verse 13. He will restore His people. He will cause the nations to fear His name. He will hear the prayers of His people, and He is accomplishing something monumental, something on a cosmic scale that is beyond our ability to fathom. One of the other temptations, I think, that we face in adversity is for us to presume that our hardships are just about ourselves. And if hardship is just about us, then the goal is just to get over it as quickly as possible. But Pastor Terry Johnson writes, when we are suffering, God is never doing just one thing. Simultaneously, He is accomplishing countless things in the lives of a multitude of people spread over multiple generations. Our afflictions touch not just ourselves, but our spouses, our children, our neighbors, our church family, people at work, and perhaps our children's children and their children's children. We are just one part of a very big picture of wondrous things that God is doing throughout the world and over the generations. And notice that the psalmist speaks to and alludes to that generational perspective there in verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. That's us, isn't it? A people yet to be created that they may praise the Lord, that He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. He is faithful to His people to show favor to them. He is gracious and He is kind to hear the prayers of His own and to pour out compassion in abundance to them. In fact, He has freed us from captivity and from condemnation that we brought upon ourselves. While our days will come to an end, He remains unchanging. Even if the foundations of this earth are shaken, our God remains the same. And so do not be overwhelmed by your trials, by your hardships, by your circumstances, but rather choose to be overwhelmed and captivated by the splendor and the majesty and the glory of God. And as one final point this morning, let's think for a few moments about the messianic nature of this psalm. Now, it's true that every psalm speaks in some way to the Lord Jesus or about His coming work. 
Some are much more clearly messianic psalms than others, Psalm 102 being among them. And while the psalmist captures his own heartache from his own experience that he is enduring as he composes these words, there's a sense in which the psalmist speaks in hyperbole in a way that is much fuller and richer in the life of our Savior. Jesus knew what it was like to be isolated. His entire life was one, we could say, in which He was out of place. He belonged in that heavenly throne room and yet humbled Himself and walked upon the dust of this earth in the brokenness and frailty of this world. Jesus knew misunderstanding as no one really understood who He was until after His ascension and pouring out of the Spirit from on high to illuminate the hearts of His followers. He taught masterfully. He was the best teacher who had ever walked the face of the earth, and yet how often was the response of the crowd one of disbelief and agitation? He ministered compassionately to those in need, healing the blind by giving them sight, enabling those who were crippled to walk, and even raising the dead. And yet it was those very things that led the religious leaders to grow in hatred toward Him and to plot His death. He was tender, and He was patient toward His disciples when they were posturing about who would be in the best position when His kingdom came. He came to His own on every level, and yet they received Him not. His life was a life of abject humility, which culminated in those final hours of suffering in the garden and upon the cross where He drank to the very fullness the cup of God's wrath. And it was there that our Savior cried out in anguish as His bones clung to His flesh, as He suffered in a way like no other, beyond what we could ever know, beyond what we ever will, beyond what we could ever imagine. Verse 23 of our psalm, His days were shortened as His earthly life came to an end. He was abandoned by His own and he was mocked by others. He saved others. Why can he not save himself? But our Savior knows all of our grief. He knows all of our anguish, and so, so much more. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. All of this affliction and sorrow and hardship and suffering was in perfect obedience to his Father in heaven. And it was the joy that was set before him of the accomplishment of our salvation that enabled him to endure the shame of the cross. And that hinge upon which the psalm turns there from verse 11 to 12 finds its fulfillment in the humiliation of Jesus as His body was laid in the grave and the exaltation on that third day as He rose again, ascended in glory where He is enthroned forever. And while our Savior no longer suffers, He continues to be filled with abundant compassion toward us. 
As we close, hear these wonderful words of instruction sent to me by a friend from Pastor Mark Jones. He writes, on earth, the church goes through many trials and tribulations. We are people of sorrows because we are following in the footsteps of our Savior. He suffered in various ways while on earth, and so do we. We cannot escape this reality until we go to be with Him in glory. Though He is now in His exalted state, He continues to pour out mercy and comfort to those in need. In that exalted state, the risen Christ no longer suffers pain or distress. He is immortal and impassable. He dwells in heaven with perfected affections, no longer burdened by the sorrows He felt as He walked this earth among us. Nevertheless, as a faithful high priest, He still feels deep compassion for His tempted and suffering people. This glorified compassion far from detracting from the good news of Christ's high priesthood, gives great hope to those who need His compassion most. For though Christ is not distressed by His people's distresses, He is moved by them. And the compassion He offers is a powerful sympathy, supplying all the grace His people lack in all their times of need until they finally dwell perfected with Him. This is the loveliness of our Savior, isn't it? Full of mercy, full of compassion, whose years have no end, who hears the groans of His people, who has set us free from our own condemnation when we were doomed to die. So may the Lord be pleased to work sanctifying grace in the lives of His children in this coming year as we marvel in His sovereign reign, even in the midst of affliction and trial.